0: Ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fisk'em your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. So y'all are going to get this on Monday, September 11th. We're actually recording it the week prior. It's currently Tuesday afternoon. Uh, y'all might recall that I mentioned I was going on vacation Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, but I wanted to make sure that we had a episode ready to go. So this is going to be volume three of What the Fisk, W.T. Fisk. This is where I basically uh, pick a handful of questions that I've been asked by y'all on Twitter or on Facebook or email for one of them, uh, just to kind of give you guys my candid thoughts on whatever issues you care about. So some of the questions end up being about me, some of them are about the podcast, some of them are about the law whatever it is, uh, use the hashtag #fisk. That is hashtag FSCK. I compile a lot of them. And the idea when we started was that we would do a what the fisk every like four episodes. But of course, that hasn't actually happened because we're now 20 something episodes in and this is only the third one. Uh, But this gives us a chance, first of all, to get a break on the expanding length of these podcasts. And we're actually going to talk about that in a minute as well. But before we do, Make sure to join the conversation online. You can follow us on Twitter at Fiskamall, that is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave comments on our website, Fiskamall.com, or if you want to join our Patreon community, that is Patreon.com slash Fisk. Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. So I've actually got three questions, and there's actually probably been more of those, frankly, that I'm just going to kind of glom all together into one. Uh, Someone asked why I keep apologizing about the length of the podcast. Someone else asked what Mike thought about the fact that we started out doing it 30 minutes and now it's consistently been an hour or longer. And someone else asked how long it takes to prepare a typical episode. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put all of those things together. Uh, I keep apologizing for the podcast length because this is only supposed to be about 30 minutes, give or take. Uh, when we decided that we were gonna start a podcast, when I hit up Mike to ask if he would mind being a sound guy and loaning me his studio, uh, part of the Things we talked about is that an hour or longer is really just way too long for a podcast. You know, it's something where if you're sitting in your office and that's all you do all day is listen to talk radio, then okay, it makes sense. But for me and for a lot of other folks, we tend to listen to them during our commute. And in the vast majority of the country for the vast majority of the people, your commute time is only about 24 minutes, give or take. So the idea was we would have a 30 minute podcast, maybe you hit a couple extra red lights and it's the perfect span of time for you to get it knocked out during your morning commute. Uh, It's hard to do that when it hits an hour or an hour and 10 minutes or an hour and 30 minutes. So, for example, with my own podcasts, the stuff I listen to, I've got this enormous backlog that I just kind of pick and choose and go through as I can. Uh, Because I listen to it when I'm traveling back and forth to different courthouses. And it's hard to do that. You know, I hate being behind. So I didn't want to have that happen to y'all. So again, I apologize. I'm still going to go over the 30 minutes, depending on whatever happens to be the, the topic in any given week. Uh, But I apologize for it, because when we set this up, it was supposed to be a brisk uh, 30-minute listen, and it's not turning out that way. So we're going to see if I can do that with this episode of What the Fisk, if we can keep it to 30 minutes. Uh, The question about what does Mike think, I actually asked him to speak on it, because you guys never actually hear him. Uh, He laughed and declined, and said that I could read a quote from him that says, and a quote, I have not left yet. So that is Mike's response and what he thinks about the increase in time. Uh, As far as how long it takes to prepare a typical episode, that varies based on the length, frankly. Um, The past few weeks, we've averaged about six hours total. So throughout the week, uh, Mike and I both, as y'all tweet us stories or as we read them, they all get put into a queue on my phone for us to then pull up. Uh, then we'll go through and we compile the outline, typically Friday or Saturday with some updates on Sunday, depending on what happens with the Sunday morning talk shows. Um, so compiling stuff throughout the week, I don't really count that in the time because I'm on Twitter anyway. The compilation, reading through the stories, making sure I understand what they're talking about, putting the outline together, that probably takes about two hours, give or take. Uh, then you have the actual recording, which typically it's about an hour and a half. So for an hour long show, uh, we take an extra 30 minutes because there are several times where I'll accidentally cough or uh, need a drink of water or something happens and I just, you know, pick up my phone and lose track of what it is we're doing uh, where we have to end up cutting it, rewinding it, starting over. So expect about hour and a half for an hour length show, give or take. And then it's on mic to do the editing So that in turn is dependent on how many times I screw up. If I can just do it all in one smooth take, he doesn't have any work to do. Uh, we've got days where, like y'all, y'all might have noticed last week's podcast, uh, my voice sounded a little bit different. I had a slight cold, so it was a little more gravelly than normal. Uh, I coughed a lot during that episode, so Mike had to go back and edit out each of those little coughs, so you didn't have to hear me sounding sickly on the uh, podcast. So that's his time doing the editing. While he's editing, I'm preparing the WordPress page. Uh, for having everything put together so we have to do a basic blurb for WordPress put a title on it stuff that'll be indexed by Google the bigger time suck for that is that all of the links that we put into the show uh, I then go ahead and link them into the show notes so you guys can have a comprehensive list of everything we talked about that is my numbingly tedious I wish there were an easier way to do it haven't figured it out yet Um, But the upside is, typically, I can go back to a prior episode and see what I talked about. If anyone has a question about it, they don't believe something that I've said because these stories, frankly, a lot of the times are entirely too crazy to believe, you can get a link right there in the show notes to show it to your friends to know for sure that I'm not lying to you. This stuff actually does happen on a weekly basis. So, Typically, getting all that done is about another hour, give or take. Uh, We upload it to Blueberry, our media host, link that to the WordPress post, schedule it to publish at uh, four o'clock every morning. So that way, right around seven, it hits all of the different uh, service providers that you've got it in time for your morning commute. So those are all the questions related to the podcast. If y'all have follow up ones, please let me know. But uh, I apologize for the length because it takes too long. Mike is still here. And it takes us about six hours per episode on average to prep it. Uh, This is going to be a lot less for this one, hopefully. So our next one comes via email from an Alicia M. in Washington, D.C. And she says, quote, you've tweeted before about how you became a criminal defense attorney. But why did you become an attorney at all? it would seem like you could have made more money as a computer scientist. Now, There's a question mark at the end of that statement. You can go ahead and put a period there. I would have made a lot more money doing computers. Um, I ended up getting into law by accident. So I came to North Carolina uh, from Virginia Beach. I grew up in a military family, and when I was applying to colleges, uh, I had a very eccentric list of criteria. So like I wanted to potentially go to UVA to study political science. UVA was expensive, even as an in-state resident. Uh, It applied to the Naval Academy where I'd spent a summer program there. Naval Academy uh, wouldn't let me double major, which I really wanted to do. I wanted to do both computer engineering and political science. Uh, And then NC State, where I'd also done a summer program, was like, sure, come on in. You can double major, do whatever the hell you want. Uh, I came to NC State to study computer engineering and was going to double major in political science as well, uh, but ended up dropping out of college. I was at state for two years from 1998 until 2000, had to drop out. Uh, I'll spare you the details. There's actually an interview with me and uh, NC State's libraries that is on YouTube that has all of that information about the mechanics of how that happened. Uh, but the gist of it is in June of 2000, I dropped out of college and I was out for five years. And back then, This is around the height of the tech boom as things were just kicking off with the internet. And to get a job, you had to fit one of three categories. Either you were so good that you could do stuff completely on your own. You were a web designer, coder, whatever else. Uh, That wasn't me. I didn't have that skill set. You had a college degree, which wasn't me because I had dropped out. Or you had a certification of some kind for any particular language that folks were hiring for. Uh, and the catch, of course, was that to get these certifications, you had to pay money to learn the material, take the test, and actually get the certificate, which if I could afford to do that, I wouldn't have dropped out of college. So I ended up initially loading trucks at UPS from 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. Monday through Thursday. Uh, that was my first job after dropping out. And eventually, that's a, that's a grueling experience, you know. Um, so I ended up finding a job as a file clerk at a law firm. And that's something where I didn't need any kind of college degree or anything. I did it fairly well, eventually got promoted to being a uh, litigation paralegal for them. Uh, Then over the course of the next however many years, all of my jobs had been in the legal arena. Uh, I worked for the North Carolina State Bar, which is the state agency that regulates attorneys. Uh, I worked as an assistant clerk of superior court. I worked as a paralegal for another law firm, making an insane sum of money for a paralegal. Um, That I thought was a lot, but in retrospect, it's really, it wasn't. Like it was a lot for some guy who didn't have a college degree, uh, but compared to what most folks make now, I realized they really weren't paying me all that much. Uh, But the gist of it is so out of those five years, all five of them were spent working in the legal field. Even when I got back into NC State, I came back in August of 2005. Uh, I worked as a lobbyist, lobbying the North Carolina General Assembly. Uh, There was a time a few years later where I actually became an employee at the General Assembly. I was a research intern for a state senator, Tony Forrest. I was there for three sessions. So I had seen the law from really every angle that you can see the law. I had been on the lawyer side. I had been a clerk. I had been a lobbyist. I had been working for a legislator himself. Uh, And of course, I'd gotten speeding tickets and everything else over the course of my life. So I really was interested in it. And at the same time, was not a fan of the solitary nature of doing computer programming and software development. I still enjoy it. I still love tech. I mean, I still do a lot of stuff on my own laptop in my spare time. Um, But it's something where I wanted something where I could interact with more people more often. So when it came time to graduate, my choices were... Uh, either stay with the computing stuff, because that was where I had the academic background, or transition into law, because that's where I had the professional background, and in between the two, I enjoyed law a lot more. So that was how I ended up becoming a lawyer. Uh, my family still judges me for that choice, because I could have been making six figures easily had I stuck with tech Uh, But I preferred not just the law, but I also wanted to start my own practice because I liked my freedom. So I'm paying for it in the sense that I'm not getting paid as much. uh, But I enjoy having the flexibility to do things like this podcast, for example. So, Alicia, thank you for the question. Next question comes from Stephen Turnbull. He is at Yesagumi on Twitter. And he talks about the – we had a discussion some months back on qualified immunity – And Stephen asks, quote, on qualified immunity, the concept seems parallel to that protecting employees of corporations. What are the differences? Um, The short answer is I don't have an exhaustive list. The longer answer is they're not as alike as you would think. So if you are an employee for a business and you happen to do something wrong, Uh, There are a couple rules that fall into place. So first, if it's an intentional tort, if it's something where you have deliberately violated someone's rights, I walk up and I punch you in the nose. uh, All employees are liable for their own intentional torts. So if I steal something of yours, if I beat you up or whatever it is, you know, you can sue the company as well, but I am responsible for that as the employee because I made that choice to do that, that. It goes outside my scope of my employment. If I'm just negligent, if I do something to a level that's not up to par, what we call the standard of care that I'm supposed to have, uh, then you often have what is called authorized agent immunity, which means that because I am acting on behalf of the business, it's the business's job to train me and monitor me and make sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, I won't personally be held liable for it. The business will be held liable on my behalf. So that concept, I I guess, kind of has some philosophical similarities to qualified immunity, but it's something where the actions of the officers are intentional. I mean, something where if I choose to shoot you, that would be an intentional tort in the employee business context, but if an officer chooses to shoot you, it's not in the qualified immunity context. Uh, As far as qualified immunity goes, an officer is considered to have qualified immunity by default as long as they are performing their duties and they don't violate what is called a clearly established constitutional right. And we've talked before about the mess of determining what constitutes being clearly established. But essentially, it's a much broader uh, protection than it is in the civil context for a plain Jane employee. It covers a much uh, broader span of conduct. And even if an officer is not given qualified immunity, the taxpayers are on the hook anyway. So qualified immunity is a protection from civil suit. If it exists, the case is dismissed against the particular officers. Uh, But if there isn't qualified immunity because of the fact they're still a government employee, the government's still going to pony up the cash and still make the case go away. And in addition to that, it doesn't cover anything relating to criminal prosecution, but you'll notice most jurisdictions will never criminally prosecute an officer, even when they've done something wrong. And in the rare cases they try to prosecute, they usually do such a piss poor job presenting the case that you'll have the jury acquit them anyway. It's very rare that you see a bona fide legitimate effort To convict an officer for violating someone's rights. And when it happens, sometimes you get convictions, sometimes you won't, but it's rare to even see the effort put in to try and convict them in the first place. So there are some, I guess, philosophical similarities, but there's far more differences than that. Essentially, qualified immunity covers a much broader span of conduct, and even when it doesn't apply, it's rare to see an officer personally held accountable. Uh, Whereas in the employee context, the employee will always be held accountable for anything they do that is intentional. And then for negligent acts, which is a smaller subset, it'll be put onto the business. So Stephen, thank you for that question. Our next question is from Brandon Riley, at Brandon J. Riley on Twitter. And he's asking about a Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decision relating to the uh, Rowan County commissioners and their practice of starting every meeting with a Christian prayer. And he asks, quote, Can Fiskamall explain how the Fourth Circuit Rowan decision does not violate the Tenth Amendment or how precedent came about for government other than, quote, Congress, unquote? So this gets into what is known as the incorporation doctrine of the 14th Amendment. So remember, you have three amendments that were passed as a result of the Civil War. You have the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and the 15th Amendment. The 13th Amendment abolishes slavery. The 14th Amendment discusses citizenship. The 15th Amendment gives black males the right to vote. So remember, the second rule of Fisk, you start at the source— And the 14th Amendment, Section 1, does a lot of stuff. Here's what it says, quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So there's been a lot of litigation going back for over a century now relating to the verbiage. Of that particular section. You have the uh, citizenships where you're domiciled, you're both a citizen of the United States and of your state where you reside, the privileges and immunities clause, the due process clause, and the equal protection clause. There's a lot of stuff happening in that particular section. So after it was passed, and it was ratified by the states, one of the first cases to interpret what the privileges and immunities uh, of citizenship meant Uh, Is a case, a combination of three separate cases that are called the slaughterhouse cases. And so this is 1873. These all took place. There were three separate cases combined together. And the name is what it sounds like. It's about slaughterhouses. You know, I don't know if any of you have ever read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. That came out in early 1900s. Don't quote me on the year. I had to read it in high school. Uh, But it's essentially a lot of really grimy stuff. So you had slaughterhouses uh, upstream from New Orleans. And or New Orleans, however the hell you pronounce it. Every time I do an episode, I always botch some particular pronunciation for a given uh, a given location. So, however you pronounce Nola, uh, just go ahead and insert your own preferred pronunciation there. Uh, anyhow, so slaughterhouses upstream for New Orleans, uh, they're throwing you know animal carcasses gizzards, blood, all that other stuff into the river. It's washing down the Mississippi and it's getting into the drinking water uh, downstream. So you have a lot of cholera outbreaks and other stuff. So in order to address this, the citizens of New Orleans did a couple things. First, they had the district attorney convene a grand jury to insist that the slaughterhouses be moved away from the river. Of course, it has absolutely no effect. It's really just a recommendation because the parish grand jury there has no impact on other parishes. So then they go to the state legislature, and the way the Louisiana state legislature decided to address the problem was that they were going to create their own slaughterhouse holding company where they basically built a state-run slaughterhouse and would lease space to these private slaughterhouses at a discounted rate as a way of trying to get folks away from the river. And of course, by having that discounted rate, they could lower the prices, put these private providers out of business, and that's how you solve the problem. So these three separate slaughterhouses all filed suit on the argument that by the government creating this own monopoly, on private industry, to do this slaughterhouse stuff, that they were violating the natural rights of man, the right to contract, the right to do business, and that was the basis for their lawsuit. Well, this went all the way to the Supreme Court, and part of their argument was that these natural rights that they were referring to were the privileges and immunities of citizenship implicated in the text of the 14th Amendment, and that the Louisiana government was violating it. Well, the court ended up Basically, in a five to four decision, pretending, in essence, that that clause didn't even really exist. So they essentially say that the legislature has not violated the Constitution, and they provide this uh, snippet of text. They say, quote, The next observation is more important in view of the arguments of counsel in the present case. It is that the distinction between citizenship of the United States and citizenship of a state is clearly recognized and established. It is quite clear, then, that there is a citizenship of the United States and a citizenship of a state which are distinct from each other and which depend upon different characteristics or circumstances in the individual. We think this distinction and its explicit recognition in this amendment of great weight in this argument Argument, Because the next paragraph of this same section, which is the one mainly relied on by the plaintiffs in error, speaks only of privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States and does not speak of those of citizens of the several states. The argument, however, in favor of the plaintiffs rests wholly on the assumption that the citizenship is the same and the privileges and immunities guaranteed by the clause are the same. So the plaintiffs were relying on this assumption that when you're a citizen of both, the U.S. and the state, that that's one consolidated thing. So you might recall from Article 4 of the Constitution, there's actually a privileges and immunities clause there as well that points out that, any citizen of a given state shall have the privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states. And then you have the 14th Amendment, which is privileges or immunities. No state can abridge the privileges or immunities of citizenship. So essentially, the, the TLDR, too long didn't read, uh, synopsis of this particular opinion is that that foreclosed all future litigation based on privileges or immunities in the 14th Amendment. Every time it's been raised, the court has said no, doesn't apply. Uh, And there's actually a concurrence in an opinion by Justice Thomas that we're going to talk about in a second, trying to essentially undo that 5-4 decision decades ago that reads out this particular clause in the 14th Amendment. So back then, the privileges and immunities of a United States citizen were very limited, the only rights you had that were derived from your United States citizenship was the right to travel between states and to use navigable rivers. All of your other privileges and immunities of citizenship were derived from the state where you happened to be a citizen of. They came from a source separate from the United States. So the Slaughterhouse cases made that portion of the 14th Amendment totally useless. To get around that, future Supreme Courts relied on the next section, which was the Due Process Clause, said that no state can deprive someone of life, liberty, or property without due process of law." And that became what is known as the Selective Incorporation Doctrine. So the first case to deal with that was Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad Company versus the city of Chicago. This is in 1897, and it involved the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment. You might recall the Fifth Amendment prohibits the taking of private property for a public purpose uh, without just compensation. So that's what this was about. The city of Chicago wanted to combine two parcels of land, and to do that, they had to get a piece of private property in between the two. The people didn't want to sell, so the city decided to have the land condemned, given to the government. They paid the private owners of it, uh, and then there was a separate railroad company who also had ownership of some of it. The railroad company got paid a dollar. And they sued, saying that this was an improper taking under the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment. This was not just compensation, and that the Takings Clause applied to the states as part of the 14th Amendment. And the Supreme Court agreed that the Fifth Amendment applied—that's what the effect of the 14th Amendment was— Uh, But in this particular case, they also agreed that a dollar was just compensation for the railroad. So that was the first ever incorporation doctrine case. And since then, there have been different cases over the course of decades that incorporate different portions of the Bill of Rights against the states. So in the free exercise context, uh, you have this case Cantwell versus Connecticut, which is from 1940. And it involved a statute that, in effect, prohibited Jehovah's Witnesses from distributing leaflets. And the Supreme Court ruled in that particular case... Uh, quote, we hold that the statute, as construed and applied to the appellants, deprives them of their liberty without due process of law and contravention of the 14th Amendment. The fundamental concept of liberty embodied in that amendment embraces the liberties guaranteed by the First Amendment. The First Amendment declares that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The 14th Amendment has rendered the legislatures of the states as incompetent as Congress to enact such laws. So that's the gist of how the First Amendment came to apply to the state governments, and in turn applies to the local governments that were derived from the states. Bear in mind, municipalities have no constitutional right to exist. The only things that exist by constitutional right are the United States federal government and the individual state governments, any municipality that wants to do something uh, is by law bound by the same constitutional prohibitions of all other governments because they're derived from the state themselves. I can give you citations for those ones, but just trust me on that—that that that's true. Uh, and incorporation still goes on to this day. So the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms was incorporated against the states just in 2010 in McDonald v. Chicago, and it was in that particular case where Clarence Thomas had a concurring opinion where he essentially asked the court to re-examine the privileges and immunities jurisprudence from the Slaughterhouse Cases. Because he would have preferred to have resolved that particular case that way as opposed to using the due process clause, arguing that the right to bear arms is a privilege or immunity of being a citizen. So that is the gist of selective incorporation. I hope that helps. And uh, Brandon, thank you for the question. So our last question for this episode of What the Fisk is another one that I've gotten several times from several different people, and it boils down to what are some of the other podcasts that I personally listen to? And I have to struggle here to define listen, because I mentioned earlier in this episode, I've got a huge backlog of a bunch of stuff that I would like to listen to that I just don't get around to. So essentially, as I am driving to any particular courthouse, I will scroll through the massive list of stuff that I'm behind on, pick something that sounds interesting, and just kind of listen to it. Uh, But most of my things tend to be either politics or law or a mishmash of science stuff. So on the politics side, uh, I listened to the Rubin Report, which tends to be uh, a lot of free speech type stuff. Uh, the Fifth Column, which is a mishmash of all kinds of things. Uh, Domecast from the News and Observer, which is our local newspaper in Raleigh, covers a lot of state, uh, North Carolina politics. Of course, the pass Report. You might recall Harold Respass was one of my guests a couple weeks back. I listen to him regularly. Uh, and then a lot of stuff from Crooked Media. So Pod Save America, Pod Save the People, with friends like these with Anna Marie Cox. And then I also have a subscription for Vox's The Weeds. I'm not as impressed with them as other folks are, so I don't listen to them as often. But the other ones I uh, are staples. On the law side, uh, there's a new-ish podcast called The Law Sisters. That is from a pair of local attorneys. It deals with uh, sexual harassment law. Uh, it's fairly well done. Uh, Constitutional is one of my favorites. I love it, even though it's also fairly new. It goes over different parts of the Constitution and how it came to be. Uh, the United States of Anxiety is one that's currently on break. It's in between its two seasons. Uh, that's another good one. And the Washington Post's Can He Do That, Exploring the Powers of the Presidency. And then I've got a bunch of the kind of the science or miscellany type uh, area. So a lot of them from NPR. Uh, Ted Radio Hour is one. Hidden Brain is excellent. I love it. Uh, How I Built This, which talks with a bunch of entrepreneurs about how they built their different companies. Uh, Invisibilia is another one. It's very similar to Hidden Brain, but covers more on the cultural side of things. NWAP, which covers both the cultural stuff as well as some politics stuff, as well as some mishmash of other stuff also. Uh, Freakonomics Radio, and then Stuff You Should Know. So that's my list of current podcasts. Because I'm so far behind on so many of them, I gratuitously subscribe to pretty much anything y'all recommend to me. I can't guarantee I'll ever actually listen to it. But if y'all have any suggestions, please feel free to uh, send them on after you've listened to this episode. So folks, that's going to do it for this episode, Volume 3 of What the Fisk. Our regular episodes will resume next Monday. Uh, It will probably be a longer than normal episode because there's going to be two weeks worth of fuckery for me to get caught up on. Uh, If you like what you've heard here or in our other episodes, please do me a favor and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or write a written review. I love those. I appreciate it. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week ahead. And for the folks that are facing down Hurricane Irma, I hope all of you have made it through unscathed. Have a great week.